This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. He is a national treasure, an iconic Canadian and a World War II hero. Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer joins us now on this 70th, 78th anniversary of D-Day. During the same month, he is also on the cover of Zoomer magazine. General, thank you so much for sharing your reflections on this important day. It's great to be with you. It really is an honor to meet you. Thank you so much. I know it means a lot to our Zoomer radio listeners as well. Let's begin our conversation by talking about how you became a fighter pilot during World War II. I became a fighter pilot because I wanted to fly from the time I was about five years old. The war came along, and uh, on my 18th birthday, I joined the Royal Canadian Air Force in London, Ontario, actually, and had set out to learn how to fly with the Air Force in the summer of 42, 43, and got my wings in commission. So it, uh, it was an objective that I'd had for a long time. General, when you reflect back on learning how to fly in that era, what do you remember about the experience of, of taking off and, and flying those fighter jets? Well, learning to fly, I flew the Tiger Moth in Windsor and Harvard at Aylmer. And then uh, I went overseas after I got my wings in commission. And in April of uh, forty. Three, I sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, being pushed hard by the submarine fleet of the enemy. Ten days of the scariest uh, kind of convoy you could imagine. And finally got to the UK, and there I learned to fly the Mustang fighter uh, aircraft, which was an American product. And we trained to be reconnaissance pilots, going over the enemy territory, looking for what the enemy was doing, mm-hmm. what tanks they had, or what guns they had, where their troops were, this kind of thing, all at low level. So that was the that was the route that I had taken, and the Mustang was my fighter aircraft. Was flying everything you thought it would be, and in the environment of the war? Was it everything you thought it would be? Well, it was the environment of the war, and it, it certainly I did 138 uh, combat missions, getting shot at all the time at low level, <laughs> and I uh, got hit only once, but I flew through clouds of, of what we call flak. But I was only... 19 and 20, so it didn't bother me that much. Uh, But at any event, I did, as you can tell, I did survive. (laughs) You did, that is for sure. That day, June 6th, 1944, D-Day, tell us about 
how your day went on that historic day. My day went this way. With our Mustangs, we were based at an airfield to the west of London, England, on D-Day. And uh, we took part in the actual assault by doing reconnaissance over the beaches uh, as they landed. The troops landed on shore on the French side. And uh, so that was our main role that they do reconnaissance to see what the uh, Germans were doing on the far side in Normandy. And we uh, really concentrated on the Orne River and a bridge on the Orne River called, it was at, at Denouville, at the Denouville Bridge, which was across the Orne River, just north of Caen. And uh, when we, my number one, Jack Taylor from Cornwall, he's gone now, but he was the leading, and we did a reconnaissance over the city of Caen, mm-hmm. uh, and could see no activity. Then we drove north up the Orne River north up to a bridge which had been taken by uh, gliders, British gliders that had come across in the dark on the night of June 5, 6, and landed in the darkness. They had trained for months on it, and they were at the point that we arrived at that bridge. They were at the point taking by force the bridge which was critically important from a transport and movement point of view across the Orne River. Uh, And because our troops were landing by parachute on the east side of the Orne River, and to have control of that bridge was absolutely essential. So as we, Taylor and I, flew up the north, up the Orne River, we came to this scene of a whole bunch of probably a dozen huge gliders that had come down at night successfully and unloaded their British troops at this bridge. And the bridge was being fought over as we passed passed over it, as the British troops were attempting to take the bridge before it got destroyed, and they were highly successful. And the bridge was named the Pegasus Bridge, after the war. But at that point, it was simply the bridge across Denouville, which was critically important in terms of the tactics. We didn't want the Germans to bring their tanks down into our area from where they were up in the Pas-de-Calais area. And uh, so holding that bridge was really critically important. After we done our thing over the bridges at, uh, at the Pegasus Bridges. Uh, Taylor and I went uh, over the beaches where the troops were landing for the first time at about 7 in the morning. And the, there were Canadian and British troops. And at the West End, the American troops. And they were all coming ashore in their uh, landing craft. 
it was quite a sight to see the cloud. There was a huge cloud over the uh, beach area, gold and silver beaches. And uh, the cloud went up uh, about uh, 10,000 feet. So we all had to be underneath that cloud in order to see the beach and to protect the people landing from the craft under fire from the German forces. <laughs> and that was our job, is, was to protect the landing craft to the best of our ability, which we did do. And uh, we were successful at that. And the whole place was loaded with explosions going off, shells landing, shells being fired, smoke. Oh, it was just... And, of course, the boats coming in were great targets for the German forces. We saw the regiments coming into the Queen's Own and others. And then finally, I looked at my petrol, my gas gauge, and it said zero. And here I was with my number one, Jack Taylor and his Mustang, the two of us. And I said to Jack, it's time to head for England because I have, I'm running out of fuel. <laughs> so the two of us throttled back and headed off to a place called Thorny Island. Thorny Island's an airfield over in the southern coast of England. I made it, and when I landed at Thorny Island, I'd been there before. My engine quit. I had run out of fuel. So it was a very exciting day, and I was able to do another trip across to the uh, beachhead that afternoon. So there was a busy, busy time for uh, people like us. Thank you for your incredible recollection. You have painted a very detailed picture for us of June 6, 1944. If you're just joining us here at Zoomer Radio, we're with Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer recounting his role on D-Day uh, 78 years ago on this day. 78 years. Yes. And w when you hear that, w I mean... What do you think when you hear that it was that long ago? We're approaching the 80th anniversary. Well, it was a long time ago, no question about that. But the human brain is such, at least mine is, I can still see the images from those days very clearly, some better than others. But the reality is the human brain is a magic place to pick up images from 70, 80 years ago or even more, and see them very clearly. Some parts are obscured, but the reality is it's just a magic uh, talent that we human beings have, and I hope that all the people who may be listening to this can share the magic of what the memory does. And memory can be defective and... Uh, and not right sometimes, but by and large, when a day like today occurs, and you're part of it, D-Day, the D-Day of opening up the attack on the German forces in France, a monumental day of hundreds of craft and thousands of troops 
it's the kind of thing that stays with you if you took part in it, and it certainly stays with me. General Romer, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd like to get your thoughts on aging and aging well, as well as the Queen, uh, your thoughts about the Queen uh, as she wraps up her Platinum Jubilee. And and we would also like to hear your thoughts on the war in Ukraine. Um, so we'll do that right after the break, okay? Okay, that's fine. Wonderful. We're back with General Romer in just a moment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today and on this 78th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944, we have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer, who is recalling his memories from that day. Uh, he's been with us since 1230 and we have him here until one o'clock. General, I'd just like to talk about you, your health. Obviously, you've had a whole life beyond when you were a young adult in World War II. What do you attribute such excellent health to now at the age of 98? One of the things that I attribute my ancient age to at 98 is the fact that I have, in effect, lived in Collingwood since 1983. I had a huge law practice in Toronto. I did a lot of work having to do with buildings and constructing buildings and getting buildings approved. And the most striking example was a six-week hearing before the Interior Municipal Board for the use of the lands around Union Station back in the early 60s. I was retained by... CN and CP and others to act for them before the Ontario Municipal Board in a hearing that would change the use of the lands around Union Station from rail to general commercial. And the big change, we had a hearing before the Ontario Municipal Board that lasted for six weeks, and I was the counsel for the the applicants, and we were successful in the end result. And so the Ontario Municipal Board approved the change that transferred the use of the land from rail, which was very restrictive, to generally speaking, which is why you can see billions and billions of dollars worth of buildings that have been constructed in that area around Union Station since that time, all the way from from uh, Young Street across to Bathurst. And the most significant building that I got approved was to turn out to be the CN Tower. CN Tower was my legal creation, and I took it all the way from start to finish. And uh, that's the kind of building that I was involved in from my the viewpoint of my law practice, but I can tear down my law practice in land use for decades, even though I was still living in Collingwood. And the reason that I've lasted so long is that in Collingwood, there are two elements, three elements. The first element is that it's on the water. 
The water is pure and uncontaminated, and it's beautiful to be out fishing on and drinking as well. <laughs> the other part of it is that the, the there is no great smoking factories here anymore. The factory that is produces glass at the west end of town is fundamentally about it. In other words, no, there's no contamination of the air and atmosphere in Collingwood. So clean, clean air and clean air and clean water. You attribute a lot of your longevity to that, and the fact that it doesn't take very long to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. I can be in the center of town at the uh, newspaper, or the liquor store, or whatever, in about seven minutes from where I live, and all of that creates an atmosphere and a place to live, which uh, allows the body and the brain to live a little longer than one would if one stayed in the center of a great metropolis culture. Did we lose the general? Or he's there. That's the conclusion of my little discussion. Well, I I just have one follow-up question. All right. (laughs) I always have follow-up questions. Uh, General, in terms of how much exercise you get, how what kinds of foods you eat, how much sleep you get, I'm curious about that. Well, in my time, I played a lot of tennis. I played a lot of golf. In other words, I kept moving uh, athletically. I kept flying uh, militarily and civilian-wise, and flying is a great physical challenge and mental. And I'm, I was an excellent uh, pilot, and as far as I'm concerned, I still am. Right. But, but the reality is uh, physical activity is essential. At the moment, I still do my walks with my little dog, Charlie, during the day, and I don't act as vigorously as I used to by any means, but I do maintain a strong physical activity uh, way of life. Very important. Now, you've met the Queen and the late Prince Philip on a number of occasions. In fact, uh, I had to chuckle reading the current article in Zoomer magazine all about you. You are the featured story in the June-July issue of Zoomer magazine. And Prince Philip, I guess, joked with you that you had more medals than him on one of your visits. <laughs> this, was a, this was an occasion I run for the military the celebrations of uh, uh, the of the D Day at uh, Juno Beach, and uh, every ten years that we have a full scale celebration where Canada leads in bringing together speakers and celebrations in Normandy. So I, it is one of the things that I have done since two thousand and four. And so the reality goes this way, that in 2004, I invited the Queen uh, to come to this ceremony, and she did come, and she brought, of course, uh, Prince Philip. And uh, I had met the two of them beforehand, so it wasn't a 
of strangers meeting strangers. But when the two of them arrived at Normandy to uh, the organization and the situation that I had organized to make the speech, I greeted them. I'm in full uniform, of course, as the general. And I greeted them as they came in in their car. They're part of 5,000 people, spectators. And uh, Her Majesty got out of her side, and I was there to salute her and to greet her. She was happy with that. And out the other side got Prince Philip. So when he came around the front end of the car, I'm there to greet him. I saluted him and shook hands. And uh, I said, I am General Ronery. He said, I know you are, and you've got more medals than I have. <laughs> it was a joke. But the fact was, uh, he was that kind of guy. He was yeah. a fantastic man. And the Queen was, has been so lucky to have had him for such a long time. He was absolutely superb. And uh, I have put together with uh, Zoomer, the edition of Zoomer for the summer months. My face is on the cover, and there are stories inside in the magazine of about nine of my meetings with the Queen and Prince Philip. And I cover with pictures and text. Yes. I cover each of those meetings and including that little vignette about Prince Philip with a great sense of humor covering his statement about the medals. And of course, he was right. I do have more than he had. <laughs> um, I'm actually looking at the picture in Zoomer magazine right now of you and Queen Elizabeth on that day. And I really encourage everyone to pick up uh, this copy of Zoomer magazine, the June-July issue with General Romer on the front cover. Before we let you go, and uh, this has just been a marvelous moment in my career, so thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to know your thoughts about the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, what, do you, what do you see as the way out of this? Uh, I, I don't know that I have a way out of it at the moment, but there is going to be a war, way out of it one way or the other. What is happening in Ukraine is a lesson for Canada. We are people who don't pay any attention to defense. You know, in the sense that we should. And the reality is, Canadians should wake up to the fact that Russia sits on our northern boundary. Our, our northern Arctic boundary of the Northwest Passage is uh, between us and Russia. They are ruthless as can be, and we should be upping our defense maximum. And I'd like somebody to stand up in the House of Commons and say, defense, for heaven's sake, get new airplanes, get the defense going again. It is a serious, serious business for Canada and its immediate future. So that's what I would say. And General Romer, in terms of boots on the ground in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is losing dozens of fighters every day. 
in terms of providing them support with uh, munitions and, and all that they need to fight this war. How is Ukraine going to deal with depleting forces in their own country? They're dealing with them, with the those competing forces in the best possible way, astonishing, astonishingly well. And so it's up to countries like Canada to supply equipment, military equipment, whether it's guns or, or ammunition or whatever, to support their activity against the, against the, uh, the onslaught of, uh, of Russia. And uh, I think that what we should be doing is maintaining what we can without actually picking up arms ourselves, because that will trigger our obligations under the NATO and NORAD uh, obligations. We don't want to get into a war, but we want to make sure that we help uh, the Ukrainians do the best they possibly can in the circumstances. Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer, thank you so much for your time on this anniversary of D-Day. My pleasure, my honor to be associated with you and with Zoomer magazine. Thank you. Thank you. Libby is back tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.